Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan, and this week I'm alone. Ben is busy having a very happy Christmas with his very happy family, uh, but because I don't have any material left in order to construct a Franken podcast, I thought I would do a little something on my own, which means it will be uh, rambly, stuttery, uh, confused, bemused, and altogether bewildering, but I'm sure we'll have some fun. Uh, I will start with some feedback, because I do have some. It's about the only thing that I'm going to do that resembles anything to do with our regular podcast. Um, All from uh, the same person, who goes by many names, commonly uh, Dean. Uh, She said, All this talk about mortality, and especially the mention about the futility of human existence, inspired me to simply play Happy Wheels while listening to this podcast, particularly the level It Keeps Happening. So I went and looked up the game, uh, saw how horrifying it was, and lots of, you know, broken bones and such. It's, uh, if you like that sort of thing, then I'm sure it's quite fun. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not sure I quite was impressed about being linked with it, but, you know, I hope we've had some more cheerful episodes since. We're hoping to have a cheerful episode next time. Um... She then said, uh, again, a comment on the show notes, uh, which you can find at psychomedia.wordpress.com. By the end of the podcasts that I gradually am catching up with after apparent months of procrastination, I rarely remember what I meant to say here. Or when I do, it is so jumbled with 20 other possible comments that it becomes near on impossible. Perhaps during one of these listens I'll make a list, unless I procrastinate. And elsewhere, she said, in other news, I like reading the comments I find scattered across the internet from strange little people that I know will inflate your already swelled narcissistic of mind head. Well, I may have a swollen head, but uh, you guys aren't strange or little, really. You're wonderful. Uh, thank you for listening for year one of our podcast. Uh, it's been quite an amazing experience. I've had a lot of fun doing it. I know Ben has too. Um... It's been interesting fitting it in with our work and with our lives, but we've really enjoyed doing it. We hope you keep on listening. We might be playing around with different ways of doing it in the new year, but we'll get to those as we go along, really, to be honest. Um, So what I'd like to do first, since I don't think I have any other feedback, is uh, tell you a little story uh, about me being culturally insensitive at this time of year. Um, it all started when I was at work, and I can't talk about my work. There are quite strict internet policies and uh, confidentiality policies. But um, I, I was at work, and I got a text from my brother uh, saying, Tim, Tim, who is your favourite actor? And I thought, oh, that's a good question. So I text him back, that is a good question. I don't know. And he texted me back saying, no, Tim, what, what, what is your favourite actor's last name? And I thought about it for a bit. I said, uh, probably Christopher Eccleston, because I've just loved absolutely everything that he's been in. I've absolutely adored all of it. I've never seen Christopher Eccleston in something I disliked. This may be because I haven't seen G.I. Joe 1 yet, uh, but uh, I don't know. It's possible for me to like his performance in that. I probably will. Uh, and so he texted me back and said, it's not Christopher Eccleston, 
I thought, well, how can't it be Christopher Eccleston? I decide who my favourite actor is. Turns out he was trying to get a security question so he could play the uh, character that he's made on my version of The Old Republic. So uh, that was a bit awkward because uh, Bioware helpfully locked me out of my account. I had to call up Canada or Texas. Now, it was a very poor line, and this is my excuse for why, when I finally got through to a person on an international free phone, which sounds terribly glamorous, but basically means being on hold with, a, you know, different music in your ears, um, got through to a guy, helped me out, and at the end of the conversation, as I'd been saying with everyone in England and who I'd been speaking to, uh, Merry Christmas. And he said, Happy Holidays. And I suddenly realised that in America, one doesn't really just say uh, Merry Christmas willy-nilly. It's very much a, um, what do you call it, uh, more broad, multicultural time of year. Whereas in England, for whatever reason, we tend to go with Merry Christmas. We don't really have uh, as big celebrations of uh, Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever the other holidays are. I must confess, I can't remember any of the others, which is poor of me. So I may have uh, insulted someone of the uh, North Atlantic variety, but I guess that's my life. I uh, kind of muddle through and only realise after the silly things I've said and done. So yes, I've had a Merry Christmas myself. Uh, It's been fun to be with the family. I'm sure we're going to be seeing more family actually over the next couple of days. Uh, it's New Year's, I'm not really that into New Year's. Uh, I'll be working on New Year's Day, which is a bit of a change of pace, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, so uh, I thought what I'd do for you, uh, do you a little Christmas treat, some material that I was not allowed to do in the past year, uh, taking all of my own responsibility for this, because uh, this is a weird, irregular thing. Don't worry, I will talk about it some psychology later. But it will mostly just be a condition I once thought I had. So there's something to look forward to. Um, I would like to do my thing about Lucy Pinder. Lucy Pinder and the Can You Keep Your Cool advertising campaign. Can You Keep Your Cool was the question posed by Lucy Pinder. Or at least by links of who she was the new face at the time. And by face I mean body. And by body, I mean specific part of the body, unfortunately. Uh, I'll put some links to the pictures, if not the pictures themselves, because that would be bad in the show notes. Have you seen the advert? Let me take you back, uh, because it's uh, a little while ago that it existed now. A picture, if you will, uh, a woman. uh, um, Perhaps the form of a woman, not the platonic form, the shape of a woman. Uh, In fact, a woman known as shapely, and the shape's concerned, not pentagons. If you imagine her uh, in... The, the kitchen, a kitchen. Uh, for the more sexist among you, that will be a less of a stretch. In fact, if you are the more sexist among you, you may have worked on this advert, so well done. In your contribution to the positive good of humanity is now equal to negative 13.7 billion. Anyway, I found the answer to this question, can you keep your cool, about six months to a year to 18 months after it was posed to me, uh, again and again by the free music site Spotify. The advert has now been banned by the SA, but at the time, Spotify was continually asking me this question. Because the trouble is, in this world, there's really no such thing as a free lunch. 
And if you're an 18 to 24 year old male like I am, the way your free lunch of yummy music is paid for is with sex. You are an inverse whore. You're a prostitute who works backwards. And for all of you people with double entendres there, I should inform you, you ought to have that checked out. It's, uh, we're really only supposed to have one entendre. It's, uh, quite a serious medical condition if you have two. Anyway, uh, I, I don't like that advert. I don't like the question. It makes me feel very uncomfortable, actually. More than that, it makes me uh, feel really quite distressed. Uh, actually, more than that, and what you see here is really my clear inability to keep track of any human feeling that passes through my mind. Or, in other words, padding. It makes me feel really quite angry. And that causes me a certain problem. Because it means that thanks to Lucy Pinder, or Lynx, or the Unilever Corporation, I cannot keep my cool. And they've asked me a question... And I have the exact answer they wanted me to have. It's Christmas time, and uh, I don't know what the Christmas number one is. This isn't, like, material now. This is just blabber. Uh, what was it that Dave Gorman called it? Blather. You know, soapy. Soapy sentences. Um, free association of words in a caffeineless head. Um, yeah, um... I have absolutely no idea what the Christmas number one is. Uh, I was very excited when Rage Against the Machine won. I felt very excited about that. I quite like Rage Against the Machine. Chance to buy their single, give some money to shelter at this time of year, and see them at uh, number one. Listening to the chart show on a really beat-up old radio in our kitchen, back before my parents borrowed on a semi-permanent basis my digital radio and put it down there. This kind of wooden-sided thing that still had all this frequencies marked on for Radio Luxembourg and such back when pirate radio was big I find it immensely cool traditionally used to be kind of in my parents bathroom for listening to the test match on no, downstairs in the kitchen the only radio apparently to hand to listen to Radio 1 the chart show whoever was presenting it that year probably Reggie Yates uh, the voice of Rasta Mouse and it was just absolutely thrilling anyway um I was reminded of this next little bit uh, by the fact that uh, Leona Lewis did a version of uh, Hurt, the semi-famous uh, Nine Inch Nails song, and the very famous Johnny Cash song. Um, anyway, um, back when I was uh, thinking about The X Factor um, and the bands off it that were really quite... Um, popular on Twitter, because obviously I'm a big Twitter user, you can follow me at, at Tetrarchangel, goodness me, the difficulty of spelling that out, really should have thought of something a lot more concise, Tetrarch, that's a thing, but not many people know it, Angel, um, and you can't really say Tetra Urk Angel to make it any simpler broken down, of course you can follow at Team Psychomedia, which I do hope you are all Team Psychomedia and not Team Leon Herring or Team Squire, that would be sad. Anyway, so yeah, this next little bit, little little minor joke section coming out of The X Factor. When Trenton Reznor listened to Johnny Cash's version of Hurt, he said, I popped the video in and wow, tears swelling, silence, goosebumps, wow. I felt like I'd just lost my girlfriend, because that song isn't mine anymore. I've heard that Biffy Clyro said just the same thing when they heard Matt Cardle's cover. Matt Covell and the X Factor team behind him had a new single out recently after his Christmas number one success. It's the sort of music that makes me, a 22-year-old man, feel like an old man. 
most frustrating part of it is that it makes me feel like an old man in all the places that I should be on the cutting edge. Twitter, for example, you've heard of Twitter. 50% Justin Bieber, 50% reactionary politics, 0% I just had a sandwich. Or at least that's what it says on the label. Not suitable for children under six months. Uh, well, actually, maybe not. Some of those children are pretty hilarious. Um, Twitter is a place where, whilst I'm happily trying to write an admittedly brief discourse on the relationship between the Star Wars spin-off novels and the Arab Spring, I have to be subjected to the singular united consciousness of the fans of One Direction. Uh, what I want to know about One Direction is, which direction is it? I have always wondered, and no one can give me an answer. Is it down? Uh, is it... Nowhere. Or is it, as I strongly suspect, towards Bracknell on the A329M? The other day I was having to put up with uh, distressingly pseudo-pornographic topics from the pop band The Wanted, who sadly have a sum total of zero bounties on their head, dead or alive. Yet. And this is not the future I was promised in the 90s. If someone had explained to me what the internet would be used for um, in the year 20-something, that... uh, I'd be very distressed by it. Because when I think the year 20-something, 2012, it's the future. I was born in 1989, and already there are kids out there who are like, yeah, 20, that's where we live. They're not excited that it's the future. That's very sad. One of the other things I thought I'd do to you, actually, do to you, do with you, uh, was uh, read a little story. Um... You could say that I am trying to come up with content to fill time with on account of the fact that we're not doing a regular podcast. And uh, you might be right. Uh, Part of me, it's just weird kind of to monologue. To make something up as you go along means that I'm going to have to go back and cut out a lot of the pauses and silences in the finished product. I'm doing quite heavy air quotes here. Uh, I could tell you about some of the Christmas prints I've had, actually, before I tell you a little story. I I had... um, Two quite geeky board games. I haven't had a chance to play them yet. I hope to play them soon. The Battlestar Galactica Pegasus expansion, which thrills me because it's got m- more Cylons. That's really the only way to make a Battlestar Galactica game better, isn't it? Add Cylons. Um, but yeah, it covers some of the favourite bits of the story from uh, the series. Um, and uh, also the Doctor Who uh, board game with Electronic Tardis. I don't think it actually works. I haven't kind of gathered enough AAA batteries to try it yet. Pretty sure you need, like, the power of a time vortex to power a TARDIS properly. So I think it will mostly spin, light up, make noises. Uh, but if you see me in the past, then it might be that I have managed to get it to work, and I managed to kind of put my hand through to a point where the fact that it's quite small at the moment, even though it's bigger on the inside, it's still kind of quite cramped by scale, right? Um... Yes, I've, so yeah, those are the, the quite geeky things I, I received at Christmas um, that I thought you might be interested in. I'll have to let you know uh, how the game goes and whether it turned out I was a Cylon all along, which is always a risk when playing Battlestar Galactica. Also a risk in life in general. Uh, it's quite possible you're working towards the uh, Cylonic agenda. I think that's the adjective. Um, not to be confused with, I don't know, colonic, because that's what the... Uh, Humans are, aren't they? They're colonials. Uh, That's really just a strange observation about words that is not helpful to anyone and topical to about 2006. But, you know, that's me. I'm sorry. Etymology of made-up words interests me. It's actually got me into uh, a fair amount of trouble. Oh, this is actually quite psychological, really. got me into a fair amount of trouble when I was uh, being tested to see if I had uh, any learning disabilities, learning difficulties, I suppose. 
um, uh, one of the tests they give you to see if you're dyslexic is they show you uh, lists of pseudo words and ask you to pronounce them. I don't know if I've told you this story before. It's hard to keep track of these things. We've done a lot of podcasts. Uh, there's a lot to listen to. Well done to anyone who makes it this far within, you know, the first month of the year. Um, they show you these list of pseudo words, which are words that make sense. You can pronounce them, but aren't real words. They don't have any meaning. So really, the way you have to do it is by analogy. And there was one word that was a real kind of key one that was written R-I-T-H. So the tester was expecting it to be pronounced rith, like it rhymes with with, which is kind of stupid because English has so many different ways of pronouncing the similar word conjunctions that you really shouldn't judge someone's dyslexia based on that alone. Uh, So I pronounced it rith. As if it rhymed with the word Sith. Obviously, not a real word, a made-up word, but one with uh, meaning, uh, at least to uh, any Star Wars fan. And uh, this made them suspect that I had uh, a learning difficulty that I really didn't have. That's the interesting thing, I guess, about being diagnosed. Sometimes you think, well, I knew I had some issue, but the issues you're telling me I have do not seem to resemble any of the issues I thought I had. They said uh, that I had terrible working memory, that I'd never be able to complete a long-form project. Well, sometimes I feel like this podcast is a long-form project. Even so, I've managed to write a couple of novels, just by the by. Managed to do a degree, um, just about. Um, which, to me, suggests that I don't have such a great working deficit that I just about managed to hold conversations, let alone sit down and do anything. But uh, I do know that I walk into things. Uh, I walked into, you know, outcrops of walls and tables pretty much the whole time through. Managed to kind of twist my body and kind of rub it against the wood, trying to just climb out of bed this morning. That is what my life is like. Um, When it comes to serious things, I seem to do better. I think if I really focus, I do better. I don't know if that's true for other people with dyspraxia but yeah it was very interesting to be subject to this diagnostic process i really wanted to be diagnosed it would help me with my exams give me kind of extra support it might help explain you know some of the oddities of my life um and there i was failing at tests that was not really because of any particular learning difficulty or developmental disorder but just because i was a bit too much of a star wars fan So, cautionary tale to all you nerds out there, of which I'm sure our audience contains a good few. Uh, So, yeah, how about I tell you uh, a little story that features a psychologist and some other people trying to catch a serial killer. That's a charming little Christmas story, isn't it? Uh, It's called A Slant, um, because for some reason I wanted to write a whole series of stories whose titles were all prepositions, which is stupid because they don't tell you any useful information and you can't remember which is which. Anyway, let me tell you this little story. It's called A Slant. The pretense, at least, was that they were licensed to private detectives. And they did take cases, but only when their money was running short. Those cases were the sort that, between them and their respective skills and positions, they could solve easily and get back to do what they were actually focusing upon. The team had been started by James Frost, who was indeed a private detective, had spent his life looking into the various cases that fell through the cracks of official law enforcement, 
and it was really only by coincidence that he'd come to be fascinated by a single sort of crime, and one that was often lost from police investigation, or at least effective police investigation. He'd realised, of course, looking into it, that it was not going to be a task he could undertake without help, expert help, and even then it would be difficult, dangerous, and most probably fruitless. And so he'd gathered some of the people he'd met over his years of investigating, people who he trusted might share some of his interest and would be able and willing to assist him. His good friend Samuela Kurihara was first. She'd been first violin in the Oakland East Bay Symphony for some time, but was tired of her musical talent, tired of being a stereotype of a quiet, diligent hard worker who played the violin through sheer will of persistence. She wanted to change from people's expectations, wanted to change from doing something civil and expected and nice. And though one might not expect a concert violinist to be able to add much to a detective service, Samuela had an intuitive gift for patterns that aided Frost's more methodical approach. Investigating a case of a bigamist, they had come across the next member of their informal team, a priest called Father Colmfrand, but known to all the sundry as Blaster, for his tendency to say Blast as his regular expletive, and also for his tendency to overuse Star Wars analogies to the point that his sermons would tend to cite them in a one-to-one ratio with biblical passages. He was well acquainted with the misdemeanours of mankind, having heard all sorts of confessions from the Catholics of Oakland, and came with an air of respectability that got them into all sorts of new places. Most people will talk to a priest. All people will talk to a priest and offer them his flip flask and do an impression of Alec Guinness's Obi-Wan Kenobi. The fourth member of the group actually hired them, Candacelia Bracken was an insurance administrator in the health service, such as it was, Apache amalgam of private and public concerns, who suspected there was fraudulent behaviour going on, but without having the means to prove it herself. She brought in Frost to try and dig out the perpetrator, and he found she did most of the work herself, having idly accessed every private database in the Bay Area. The connections they made brought down an embezzler who had made millions, and it took some time for them to return from the limelight, where they preferred to be. The final components of the team came as a pair. Falano Cerro, as his passport described him, was a patient being cared for in the community. His psychologist was one Olive Moore. He was a rather tame sociopath, who had difficulty not lying, stealing, defrauding and endangering, though he was rather somewhat too good-natured to do anything too violent. His main tendency was never to answer to the same name twice, and Olive had remained his main supervisor, despite the fact that he had been deemed not able to benefit from intensive therapeutic intention, mostly because she was pretty good with getting along with his idiosyncrasies. When James Frost had suggested her looking for psychological input for his investigative project, she had just suggested that Cero might be able to offer them unique insights, and it might just keep him out of trouble, or at least his usual trouble. Once he knew he could call on all these peculiar fellows, he called a formal meeting. There was no real need to do so. He'd informed each of them of his mission, as well as the police liaison officer he had worked with in the past and hoped would fill him in on some useful directions, Lieutenant Murphy. But his very obsession was with doing the proper way of things narratively. And a narrative, such as the one he was engaging with, required a team meeting where he clearly laid out his plans. Indeed, many of his co-workers found his desire to give proper exposition rather tedious, Hello, and welcome to the first meeting of the Hunters, Frost announced, when they had all gathered in the meeting room of his office, putting the necessary stress to indicate the capitalisation. That's what we're calling ourselves, asked Olive, wary of anything that would make them too aggressive. Look, does it matter, Samuel responded, provided we do the job, we investigate the cases. I was inspired, Frost continued unfazed, by the legend of the Dark Defender of Miami. Sarah smiled knowingly, Father Cole frowned. 
I thought, Friend posited, that that was thought to be a serial killer himself. The early aughts, but someone definitely on the dark side. Frost was still determined to play through. Who utilised his job, as the legend goes, to go beyond the police and catch serial killers. Whatever he did next is irrelevant. Now together, we have a wide set of skills, and Lieutenant Murphy has helpfully sent us some of the scraps of information on unsolved murders, missing people, and general rumours that we have the time and inclination to look into. Murphy himself will be busy solving the hundreds of more straightforward violent crimes that affect our fair city. Now, Dr Moore has some information on the best lead that Candacelia has identified from the mass of random data. He nodded to Moore, who stood and addressed the group. There have been a number of murders in this state where there has not been any useful forensic evidence. In some cases, because it has been diluted by masses of water or else other cleaning products. Now, Jean et al. in 2010 found that being clean, having that feeling of cleanliness, makes us harsh moral judges. Our sense of egotistical morality is inflated. Now, we've heard of serial killers who have killed with a seeming motive, prostitutes, homosexuals, the like. My theory is that there is a killer out there who found being meticulously clean took him from being an extreme judge into being an executioner. That's fascinating, Samuel replied, but what's the pattern? Do we have any coherent set of victims? Olive's face fell. Not yet. If we do have a killer, I can make some suggestions about his characteristics. I've already assumed he's male, for example. But we obviously need to do some research. Look at what we have before we can achieve such a thing. I imagine that me and Samuel I might be able to make some headway on that, Cantacelia added. Then that's your assignment, Frost summated. I'll take any easy cases. Father Colm has masses to do, including, well, including some masses. Um, Moore and Cerro. That's Helano de Grado, Cerro interrupted. We'll be trying to work out the sort of people that will be expecting to a serial killer acts in that way. Uh, so we can exclude simple attempts to clean up. They'll feed that onto Bracken and Kurahara. And we'll meet again when we have got a half-decent lead. About a month passed. Frost did some quick till-fiddling and marital infidelity cases to keep the others in cash. Samuela, with her innate love of and gift for patterns, had easily seduced that the cases they were, she was confident were their putative serial killer. Frost was certain that they were not chasing ghosts. There are no stories that don't involve some solution, some real villain. He would not be surprised if it ended up being the psychopathic Sarah. But he would be surprised if it turned out to be a dead end. Candacelia weaved wonderful digital magic over the details they had, drawing up maps, crunching data, trying random multiple regressions and factor analyses, just for the fun of them. She fed the patterns, both intuitive and statistical, back to the pair of Moore and Sero, who tried to figure out the mind of the man. Sero was quite brilliant at play-acting, and Moore's profile was soon being put together. Male, white but not American, probably European. 40, but fit. History in a musical or otherwise sterile profession. Biochemistry, maybe. And with pre-existing authoritarian political views. Someone had identified a number of potential motives for the crimes. Oakland Police Department had a certain time limit and evidence threshold for actively following up on a murder. And many in the horrendously violent city just did not have the pieces available in the time set. But they left the bits and pieces, the interviews, the account, on file, along with their thoughts on which parts of them may well be lies. Amongst those they attached to the cleanly executioner, there was an adulterer and a prostitute, a known drug runner and a suspected embezzler. These were easy to expect as the work of some variant on the vigilante, the same sort of killer that had inspired them to start the group. It was the other cases, the ones the police had even less leads on, that they found curious. 
Frost poured over them in fascination, and he knew that Moore had done just the same. What possible crimes could they have been judged for? A regular coffee meeting with Samwella, he thought aloud. Are we dealing with some kind of Seven rip-off? Kurahara looked blank. Seven. David Fincher. Brad Pitt. Seven Deadly Sins. Come on, have you watched any classic cinema? What did your parents make you practice violin instead of watching DVDs? That's a cheap shot, James. Sorry, but seriously, we've got to watch that movie. I don't think that the killer was trying to tick off a set of separate crimes. I think it just depends on whom he encounters in his kill cycle. You think it's cyclical? Most serial killers are, often in an accelerating cycle. We don't have that yet. It's going to get worse? Maybe. Psychologists, and no doubt more is doing this right now, try and box the killers up because it makes it easier to catch the next ones. But each pattern is unique. It's possible that regularity, given the profile we've already put together, suits the killer. Has Candacelia got a list of potential suspects? Europeans of that description living in the Oakland area? Yep, immigration files have proven very helpful. I'm checking on them, just to see if there's anything obvious about them. Surely the probability of you actually seeing anything is low. Infinitesimal. Frost looked thoughtful, as if that idea had not occurred to him at all. I, I guess I expect to stumble across something. Samuel sighed. Frost still acted like he was on television, and just by being outside these houses for a while, the killer would give something away. They finished their coffee and went their separate ways. See you later, Frost said, as he always did. See you soon, Kurihara replied, just as she always did. Frost did not spot any obvious suspicious behaviour. No skulking, no bodies, no blood. He was a little disappointed. Candacelia had worked out a map of the potential kill zone. Moore had looked up some details of criminal psychology and fed her some algorithms, and they now had some sense of what part of the city he seemed to be operating in. All of the murders had fallen somewhere between 8th and 40th, between wood and brush. If anything, this was impressive. The city blocks were bound to be full of potential witnesses. This killer must be quiet. The killer must be quick. Frost, somewhat reluctantly, desperately wishing that his team would somehow be able to catch the killer in the process of the act, fed this information back to Lieutenant Murphy. The patrols had the bulletin about the expected characteristics added to their long list of individuals to look out for. Months passed. The group amassed various bits of information, not really sure how to get any further with their investigation into the cleanly executioner, as Frost had forcefully dumped him. Their informal profiling group just kept on taking the scraps of Oakland and trying to build portraits of the killers. Frost was talking to Cerro when he had something of a realisation. Do you know why I, Torrentio Paladin Forster, am in Oakland, Frost? Why? Because I, Triton Kapersky, am a dangerous psychopath. Not so dangerous. You're helping us. I've never seen you hurt, well, anyone. No, but despite my apparent incapability of sympathy, there must be a horde of those like me, Capuchin St. John George. If the violence here really is as bad as we've heard, then maybe there's a whole host here, or that come here. Imagine the freedom. What if they walk through New Orleans, Detroit, St. Louis, Baltimore, Newark, here, Washington, Buffalo, Kansas City and Cleveland? A pack of lone wolves, these predators of the stories, killing because the numbers will never turn against them. Cerro stretched, and Frost could see his inhumanity calculating. Were at my will, Cerro continued, I could kill and never be found. Were at my will. He paused, and Frost simply watched him. Of course, they might be fantastical. We're making it up as we go along, daring to make conclusions that the police, with their hard evidence, can't. I suspect that there are none of these monsters we've painted out there. Or one, maybe the one. Frost realised that he might have started something bigger than he could handle. He wanted to catch one murderer of note. 
He wanted something to do, something to try out with Samuela. He wanted to build a team and hunt the devils among men, because it was distressing to keep facing up to mundane evil, to the flaws of man. He wanted a willed Kantian evil, he wanted a demon. Yet if Sero's suppositions were realistic, then maybe it wasn't some isolated threat, but a plague. He'd read the FBI's books as much as he'd gobbled up the crime novels, twenty to fifty of them by federal estimate. He didn't want to believe in the alternative, that the driving force of the humans around him was chaos, hostility and murder. Even shades of grey he could accept, but not something fractal and fractured, chaotic and without a through-line. Kindness, or resignation, or maybe a glimmer of hope is what caused Lieutenant Murphy to invite the team as observers to the murder scene. Webster Street, in a small apartment above a noisy restaurant. Water everywhere. The acrid smell of cleaning products. The victim appears to be one Dai Tran, Vietnamese-American of a few generations, but the kill fits your profile. I figured I'd let you take a look. Cantacelia, determined to see the scene, had moved to a smaller, non-motorised wheelchair that they had just about gotten into the apartment. You ever run into this guy, Kurohara? she asked. Samuela looked more wistful than affronted. Not all Asians know each other, Candice. If anything, probability says we should be less likely to know each other than any other ethnicity. Well, no one ever thinks about probability when they're making racial stereotypes. How sad. I just figured I'd ask, Candacelia responded. I spend my life playing with those damned numbers, and in my experience, coincidences are more common than you'd think. Frost smiled. He certainly hoped she was right. It looks like our guy, he told Murphy. What have you got? Water everywhere, which is what got us the tip off. Water and blood seeping down some hollow or pipe or something into the kitchen of the restaurant a couple of floors down. The way into these apartments is round an alley, rather than the obvious front for the restaurant out on Webster. So we're going to be lucky if we can get any decent witnesses. I've got my officers doing all they can. Scene of crime, we've already done the basics, and we've blasted if we can't afford any more than that. I guess I can get you the photos. Just pretend you never gave them to the mental patient, all right? Team, any thoughts? Frost addressed his mismatched bunch. I, uh, I don't like all this death. The dark side is strong at times like this, Fran stated. Far more hesitant than usual. It doesn't feel like enough to shine a light. Samuel had gotten engrossed in a conversation with the forensic experts just as parting. Frost could hear something about blood spatter and dilution. Not a rich person, but not terribly poor. Ethnic minority, but then who isn't? Look at the team you've built. Frost, it was as if, as if you were ticking off some representative list of Americans. Candacelia tried to add her thoughts to the investigation. Sero just looked on in dark fascination, and Moore looked very uncomfortable. What is it, Olive? Frost asked her. There's nothing new here, nothing. We already know all we're going to know about this man. What I wouldn't give to look him in the eyes, to talk to him, have him up in the secure unit and just wait until I broke his patience. Frost frowned at the harsh words of the normally compassionate psychologist. The actual business of murder was not something any of them had dealt with. Father Con would probably have seen people lying in state, and Moore had probably seen a suicide or two. But the way the room smelt of that mix of mordant cleanliness and blood, the unmistakable art and rain, was getting to them. They weren't Murphy, they weren't homicide detectives. He should get them out of there. Get them back to being abstract hobbyists who might never catch a soul. They put their heads together repeatedly, taking the details the police fed them and obsessing over them, more trying to spot any hallmarks of known madness, Sarrow musing on this parallel to himself, Candacelia crunching the numbers, Frost trying to get his head around the narratives of the witnesses such as they were, and Sam Weller just looking over the evidence from a distance, looking for some sign of a harmonic pattern. They gave Murphy everything they could. He thanked them, and when he got a call from the traffic division, saying that they'd intervened in an incident of road rage, and upon searching the car, they'd found a barrel of distilled water and a kilo of lye soap. He was glad the team had been there. 
He'd seen senseless violence beyond the share of a dozen men. He went out almost hoping to find another ganglander dead when the calls came in, as they did daily. And those mad fools, those strange harlequins, had given them the pieces to get the guy, to arrest a serial killer that had committed a dozen murders in his jurisdiction. He'd shake Frost by the hand, he'd buy them all a few rounds. Those self-proclaimed hunters, working off an urban legend, actually turned out good for something. And that's the end of part one of the story. Maybe I'll read you part two some other time. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I think I should probably just uh, tell you about a little bit of psychology to fulfil the meaning of this podcast, even if it is a demi-podcast. I haven't come up with a title for it. It's quite hard to do so. Without the kind of back and forth, the repartee, uh, and also because I'm concentrating on doing the talking the whole time, why the episode titles often end up being something that Ben has said, because uh, I've been listening to him. I like to listen to him, obviously, because it would be quite rude if I didn't. So, yeah, um, I studied delusions, as I'm sure I've mentioned before. One of the delusions I've studied is the Fregoli delusion. The Fregoli delusion is where you believe that people you know are following you in disguise, constantly. You'll see a stranger on the street, and you'll be convinced that they are someone you know but in disguise. In this way, it's kind of the opposite of the Capgras delusion, where you believe people you know are, in fact, strangers. But much rarer. In a way, a, a lot stranger. And a lot of these delusions were discovered, you know, l- uh, late Victorian, maybe a little bit kind of early into the uh, Edwardian period. Um, and, you know, the cases are few and far between, and maybe there's an issue of diagnosis. But... Uh, I often go places and think I'm going to run into someone I know. When I go on holiday, I become absolutely convinced that going along the street, I'm going to run into someone I know, some person from my past. I have no idea why I get convinced of this, whether it's some kind of minor version of the Fregoli condition, that there's some part of my brain expecting to see the familiar where there's no reason for it. Um, But... You know, I'll go to Kent, or I'll go to the north or somewhere, and think, oh, I'm bound to see someone. And so I think about it, well, which someone am I bound to see? Oh, well, I might be see so-and-so. Why? Well, I haven't seen them in years. That's very strange, but it's quite interesting. That's kind of the trouble with studying uh, any clinical side of psychology, because you start wondering about yourself, and obviously a lot of us um, will be in some way affected by a mental health issue in our lives. Uh, but, it, you know, it was a bad time to be, for example, studying anxiety uh, when we were building up to our big finals exams. You know, because suddenly you're very much aware that all the symptoms you have are very much the symptoms of anxiety. Well, surprise, surprise, but it's not so good when you're reading about, oh, no, this condition that needs treatment and the things that cause it, the chemical changes in your brain. Oh, sorry, that's a loud bit. I just knocked some things over, as frequently happens in my messy, piled-up room. Uh, It's all right. I I haven't broken anything, I think. Um, But, yeah, so I hope that uh, there's no people listening to this that are too hypochondriac that when we talk about uh, conditions, you don't have the Capgras delusion. I definitely do not have the Frigoli delusion, the number of cases is so low, and in a way, not that I would know if I had the delusion, because delusions are very impenetrable to, uh, what do you call it, insight. 
uh, to understanding that you have a delusion. But the people around you will be very aware of it. Of course, only if they bring up the uh, topic, uh, which is easier with, I guess, Capgras or Frigoli delusion. But a lot of uh, delusions of that sort called monothematic, as opposed to ones that kind of occur in schizophrenic, which are, in schizophrenia even, that are broad and contain lots of elements. These are singular delusions on one topic. If you don't bring up the topic, it can sometimes be hard to tell. Uh, so, let's say I had uh, De Clarenbrose. Um I believed that some distant stranger was secretly in love with me and sending me secret messages, uh, which is not happening. Uh, or if they are, their secret messages are deeply inefficient, uh, and you should really uh, send less secret messages, whoever you are. But no, um, the... Uh, for example, there was a woman who believed that King George was secretly in love with her, and so if he appeared on his balcony, she would say, oh, well, the way he waves, he said to me, that wave meant that he was in love with me. But if you didn't ask her about King George, she probably wouldn't bring it up, which is absolutely fascinating, really. I guess maybe it says something about our assumptions about mental health. We can't make any assumptions, either positive or negative, about the likelihood of uh, mental health because maybe we just haven't asked the right questions or maybe the person just doesn't show it when you talk to them but maybe they are having an issue it's a bit of a downer note really let me find a little joke actually i'll end on a couple of little little jokes little jokes little jokes but i'm going through this uh great collection of random bits of uh humorous material um it's a bit too geeky, isn't it, really? Why did Cloudbase get a hybrid engine? Because Spectrum is green. If you get that, well done. Uh... Oh, yeah. If the distance your imported food travels is food miles, what happens when you buy a foreign car? Um... Ah, yes, sir. Uh... That's quite, quite a good one. What do you get if you cross a sheep and a kangaroo? A very sternly worded letter from your university's bioethics committee. I'll end with a joke that came out of my uncle's box of cracker jokes, which he's had for years now, just full of cracker jokes, some of which are funnier than others. I was very fortunate in that I got this joke, which I found deeply entertaining. Uh, I'll leave you on this note. I uh, wish you a Merry Christmas, uh, a Happy New Year, a, I don't know, cheerful Hanukkah, a delightful Kwanzaa, uh, a happy holidays, but I don't get holidays in that sense anymore, uh, etc. So, the joke, cracker joke. Imagine the cracker popping open, except it didn't, it came out of a box. Why is it so difficult to train dogs to dance? Because they have two left feet. Goodbye, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the Demi podcast.